following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. All right, good morning. It's good to be back. My, uh, my Christmas was a little crazy. Uh, we, went, we were supposed to go to Dallas. And then we were supposed to go to Kansas, but my whole family ended up getting the flu, so we stayed here for a number of days. We missed Christmas Eve, uh, we missed service here, and I was surprised to see all the white up today. It looks beautiful. Um, and then we did go to Kansas, but we got back, and now they all have the stomach bug, so uh, it's great. It's been a great Christmas time. I hope you've enjoyed yours. Um, fortunately, I've avoided all my family. I drove back by myself. Uh, my wife loved that. So um, we are going to be continuing the Christmas story this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 8 through 20. And this is probably the most famous portion of the Christmas story. It's hard not to hear Handel's Messiah in your head as you read it, but stick with me as we read through this passage, and I promise I won't sing. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This morning we are going to look at this good news of the birth of Jesus, and we're going to ask two questions. We're going to ask, who is this good news for, and what really is the good news? Why is it good news for us? So who is it for, and what is it? It's pretty simple this morning. So first, who, or, so who is this good news for? We're going to look first at this in verse 8, right? Notice that we start in the same place we left off last week. We're in the same region, right, of Bethlehem. But we're told that now there are shepherds, <coughs> excuse me, there are shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. We're, we're moved away from Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the manger, but we moved away just a little bit outside the city to the area around, and we're with shepherds now. And it's natural for these shepherds to be out in the fields with their sheep because they had to protect them. There are wild animals that could steal them and uh, eat them, or there are people that might try to steal them because sheep were valuable, so the shepherds would sleep out in the fields 
with their flock. And it's there to these unsuspecting shepherds that an angel appears. He says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. This is the natural response, apparently, when you see an angel. I think everyone would have this response. We saw it with Zechariah. We saw it with Mary. Now we see it with the shepherds. They're greatly afraid. This is a little aside. In, in Hebrew, and in, in here in Greek, they don't have the word for very. And so what they would do is they would repeat the word. So it says they feared fear. They feared a great fear. And it, it's, you just catch that little bit of that's how Mary would tell this story. She's telling Luke, right? Little details like that point to Mary being the source of this story and telling Luke about it. But we see here, right, this, that they are greatly afraid, right? This is the natural response to seeing an angel. And if you picture it right in your mind, you, you're out in the dark night. You're sitting there maybe dozing off. And all of a sudden, out of the darkness, there's this brilliant light that blazes in the sky. And you're terrified. But then you hear a voice talking out of that bright, shining light. And this is what the angel says to them. He says, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. He recognizes that they're afraid, and he tells them, you don't have to be afraid. I'm not here to do you harm. I'm here actually to bring you good news. I love how the King James puts it here. It says good tidings. I don't know why that just sounds so Christmassy, right? They're bringing good, good tidings to these shepherds. This is actually the word that we translate as gospel. The angel is bringing the gospel to them. And this is, this is kind of fun that this term for gospel was, was an ancient Greek word that was typically associated with victory in battle. So they would send a messenger to back home to like the city-state and say, hey, we won this battle. And that was a messenger's job. And probably the most famous of these is Pheidippides. If you remember the story of Athens and the uh, Greek city-states, they were trying to fight the Persians. And they gathered together at a place called Marathon, and they had a great battle. And then they sent Pheidippides, Pheidippides, who was this famous runner, they sent him all the way from Marathon back to Athens to proclaim good news to the city, that the Persians had been defeated. And if you know the story right, he runs up, he falls down before the, the uh, people of the city, and he says, rejoice, we've won. And then he dies. It helps remind me that the first guy who ran a marathon would die, so that's why I don't run marathons as well, right? But that's what this context of gospel means. They would have this picture of a great battle that's being won, and now they're receiving news of this triumph, of this victory. So here, too, notice that the angel says, I bring you good news, and it's of great joy. Just like what Phidippides said, right? He's bringing them joy, because when you hear news like this, when you hear something so wonderful... You can't help but rejoice. You can't help but be overflowing with joy. It's fun to think of that uh, with my Christmas experience. wouldn't say there was a ton of joy this past Christmas. There was a ton of sickness, but not a lot of joy. Was your Christmas characterized by joy at the good news that this angel is sharing? In contrast to their great fear in seeing the angel, the angel tells them that they're supposed, they're going to hear good news, which is going to produce in them great joy. Their joy is going to replace their fear. But I want us to look at who this good news is for, who this gospel is for. So look back at, at the verse. He says, I bring you good news 
That will be for all the people. The angel identifies two people, two recipients of this good news immediately in the context, right? The, the shepherds. This good news is for them, but it's also for all the people. So, when, you know, we've kind of sanitized the idea of shepherds. Uh, when I picture shepherds in my mind, I don't know why, but I picture uh, precious moments shepherds like that my grandma had. Sorry if any of you still have those, you know, those big teardrop eyes. They're worth a lot of money. You hold on to those things. Um, but that's how we picture shepherds, right? But that's not really what being a shepherd is like. It's not some cute little teardrop-eyed baby uh, doll. We've scrubbed them clean, but in their culture, right, to be a shepherd was a really low job. It was looked down upon. Because you spent time with sheep all day, every day, taking care of them and all their needs, and you slept out, and you, you were smelly, you were dirty, and you were unclean. But not just literally unclean because you have filth all over you, but you're actually ritually unclean as well. You're ceremonially unclean because of your relationship to the flock. And shepherds also had a, a bad reputation for you young people. They were sus because they were, that means suspect for all of us older people, because they, they were actually known as being thieves because they were out late at night kind of un, uh, unaware of everybody else what's going on. They, would, they were actually known as thieves who would take things from people. So if you saw a shepherd, you kind of were a little cautious. You like moved your purse to the front because you thought maybe the shepherd is going to steal from you. They weren't trusted. Shepherds were despised so much that they weren't even allowed to be witnesses in court. That's what it meant to be a shepherd in those days. It wasn't respectable, it wasn't cute, but it was despised. It was lowly. And these are the first ones that God sends an angel to tell the good news to. He sends an angel to these lowly, scruffy shepherds. Why would God do that? Why would God choose them? Out of all the people around, right? There are a lot of people in the region that God could have sent this angel to. Why does he choose shepherds? Have you ever thought about that? There are a couple of reasons that I thought of. First, in the history of redemption, God regularly uses shepherds. You think about Abraham and Moses. They were both shepherds. And of course, probably the most famous shepherd in the Old Testament was David. Right? The future king of Israel started off as a little shepherd boy. And what's interesting to think about is David was from the, from the city of Bethlehem. And he probably tended flocks in that same region and maybe even in that same field that God sent this angel to these shepherds. So there's that history of redemption, God's use of, of shepherds. But there's also a great symbolism here. Because, because of their close proximity to Jerusalem, these shepherds and these flocks were, were not just ordinary sheep. They were actually set apart for a purpose because all of the flocks within a certain distance of Jerusalem were actually set apart and designated for one purpose. They were for the temple sacrifices. So these sheep watched by these shepherds were there because they were going to be covering the sins of their people. They would be taken to the temple and offered as a sacrifice to atone for sin. But now the Lamb of God had come who would take away the sins of the world. So there's a beautiful symbolism there as well that God comes to shepherds because his son who has been born is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. But I think ultimately in choosing shepherds, there's another reason. It's because this is how God works. 
God chooses the lowly. He chooses the poor. He chooses the humble because he knows that they are the ones who will respond to the gospel. When Jesus began his ministry in Luke 4, this is how he starts. He says, the Spirit has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. It is the sick who Jesus comes to make well, right? It is the blind who Jesus makes see. It is the poor who Jesus declares are truly blessed. And it is the humble who will be exalted. This is the way God works. The reason is because they know their need. They are open and receptive to the good news. They recognize their need of what the angel is bringing. Paul says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 1 in a different way. Verse 27, he says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. That is why God goes to the humble. That is why he announces this to the shepherds, right? The good news is for them. It's a good news of grace. It's a good news that you can bring nothing to him. You just have to receive this good news. So the good news is for the shepherds. But that's not the only person, the, the, angel, the only group that the angel says this message is for. Look back at verse 10. He says it is for all the people. Now, these Jewish shepherds, they would have heard that, and they would have immediately and understandably and rightfully thought of the angel talking about the people of Israel. This announcement of good news was good news for Israel because they had been waiting. They had been longing for God's promises to be fulfilled. They were waiting for God to fulfill his plan. But when I introduced the Gospel of Luke, we said that Luke has a, a special eye toward the Gentiles as well, both in his Gospel and in the book of Acts that he wrote. Because he's expanding this idea of who the people of God are beyond the confines of the, of the nation and people of Israel. And he's extending it to the world. He's extending it to the Gentiles. You even see this hinted at in these, in these uh, birth narrative stories of Jesus. In just a few days after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph would bring the infant Jesus to, to the temple to be dedicated. And remember, while he's there, Simeon, this old man, had been waiting for the consolation of Israel, right? He'd been told he wouldn't die until he saw the consolation of Israel. He runs up to Mary, well, maybe slowly walks up because he's old, comes up to Mary and Joseph, and he says this. He says, God's salvation was prepared in the presence of all the people, same words, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. This is now God's plan. He's including the Gentiles into the people of God along with believing Jews. So now there is one people of God, the Jews and Gentiles together. So we see that the gospel is then for everybody. It's for the lowly. It's for the average person. It's for the afterthought. It's not just for those who are scrubbed clean and look nice. It's not just for the wealthy or the elite those who are highly educated. It's not just for a certain ethnic group or a certain place or location. This is good news for people like shepherds. And this is good news for everyone, for all the world. So what is this good news that the angel proclaims to the shepherd? We're going to dive in a little deep into this, this section because it's rich and it's beautiful. So let's look back again now at verse 11. 
that'll be, that'll be tough. There we go. Um, Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For unto you, the angel said, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the good news. The good news is that a baby has been born. This day, today, he's saying, right now, a baby has been born. And, you know, it's always good news when a baby is born, right? People are really excited. They send you pictures, and they tell you how much it weighs and how long it is and all those cute things, right? Every baby is wonderful and sweet, but there's something special about this baby, right? This, not every baby gets an angel to announce its birth. So what is unique about this baby? Who is he? That's kind of the, the core of what the good news is. It's who this baby is. He's special. He's unique. And the herald angel identifies this baby by three significant titles. He calls him Savior. He calls him Christ. And he calls him Lord. So first, this title Savior, right? It's focused on his mission. What is this baby here to do? Well, even though he was just born, he's wrapped up in swaddling clothes and can't even move, he's here to save. He's here to rescue people from imminent danger. He's going to deliver people out of bondage. It reminded me of uh, this idea of a savior, right, of uh, the picture of Terminator 2. If you remember, Arnold Schwarzenegger comes around the corner and the, the lady's like slipping and falling. And he puts down his hand and he says, come with me if you want to live. That's what a savior does, right? He rescues you out of certain death and he's going to give you life. He pulls you up out of death into life. That is who Jesus is. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a life-threatening situation? Have you ever been in a point where you are terrified that you are going to die? There is nothing like that panic. Your heart just starts racing when something like this happens. When I was a kid, I remember I was probably about seven or eight. I lived in Kansas growing up. And in Kansas, we get what's called snow. So snow is this white stuff that falls from the sky. You guys wouldn't know anything about that here, I guess. But in Kansas, sometimes you'll get a lot of snow. And this one year, we had a record snow, and because it's flat, yes, Kansas is flat, the wind kind of will sweep it, and if there's any slight rays in the ground, it'll collect. And so right outside my house, I lived out in the country, and there's this highway out front, and so there's this bank of snow, and I promise you, it was six feet deep. And as a seven- or eight-year-old kid, I was like, this is amazing. So I'm going to make this amazing tunnel, this amazing fort in the snow. So I just start digging through, and I'm like working through, I'm down deep in this tunnel, and then all of a sudden, boom, everything's dark. And I feel this crushing weight on me. And I just start to panic. I'm like, I'm going to die here. I cannot move an inch. I know I'm going to suffocate. And I start praying. I'm like, dear Lord, please save me. Dear Lord, please save me. And a few moments pass. And I feel these hands scraping at my feet. And then hands grab my leg and just pull on me and pull on me. And pop, I come right out. My dad had seen that a snowplow was clearing off the road, clearing off the highway. It had picked up tons of snow and dumped it right on top of me. Didn't know I was in the, in, playing in the snowbank, right? But my dad was there, and he had seen that happen, and he ran over, and he saved me. To go from death like that to life, you'll never forget a moment like that. And that's what the angel is announcing is happening. There's a Savior now. He has come to rescue us. He has come to save us. But the question is, from what? The people of Israel thought that the Messiah, they thought their Savior was coming, 
who was going to deliver them from their oppressors, who was going to deliver them from their, their Roman oppressors who had conquered them and had, were running their land. They had a false idea of what their Savior was like. But I think we so often do that too. It's funny, we're like, oh, those people of Israel, they didn't realize Jesus is coming to save them. But, but we do the same thing. So often we focus on Jesus saving us from our circumstances, helping us in our immediate situation, the problems that we face. We don't think about the bigger picture often. So think about last time, last time you spent time in prayer. Was your focus on the circumstances of your life and asking Jesus to save you from those things? Or was it really focused on what Jesus truly came to do? Because he is the Savior. Yes, he can impact all these different things of our lives, all the different stresses, all the different hardships we face. But the reason he came, the reason he's called Savior is because he saves his people from their sins. We've seen this hinted at already in the book of Luke. He's made this connection for us that the Savior that's coming is here to rescue us from sin. We saw in, Zachari- in Zachariah's song, in Luke 1, 68 through 69, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited his people and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then he's talking about his own son, John the Baptist, and he said his role will be to tell the people of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. That is our true problem. That is the thing that is wrong with us, that we cannot fix ourselves, that's put us in a desperate, desperate state. Scripture tells us that we are slaves to our sin. It's worse than that. We're dead in our sin. There's nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves, to save ourselves. I like to think that maybe as a little boy I could have moved a little bit and turned over and crawled. No, I was stuck. But we like to think that we can save ourselves, that we just need to be a little bit better, that we just need to try a little harder, that we just need to buckle down, grit our teeth. We don't recognize the true state that we're in, that we need a Savior. I remember when I was in college, very graphically portrayed this idea of our need for a savior um, in the video game Halo. Now, for some of you in your early 40s, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Halo was this game where there's this army guy with this cool helmet, and there were aliens that he had to fight. And there's this great picture I saw in a magazine where this guy, Master Chief, he's standing there, and all around him are like explosions, ruins of buildings, alien ships. And all the tagline said was that this battle doesn't call for a hero. It calls for a savior. And the title of that advertisement was Earth's Savior. There's something wrong with us that not even working hard and doing our best and trying harder can fix. We can't be a hero and rescue ourselves. We need a savior. And the angel announces that he is here. He is here to deliver us from our sins. This is the good news. First, that he is our Savior, that he's come. But then next, he calls him the Christ. A lot of times we think of Christ being Jesus' last name, but it's not. It's actually a title. It, It comes from the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. And the idea is that somebody would be set apart symbolically by pouring oil or anointing them with oil to show that they are, so, they are set apart. And the Jewish people had, over, over the centuries, developed this great expectation from the Old Testament 
that a Messiah was coming. In fact, they even thought, well, maybe there's a couple Messiahs coming because he's got so much to do. He's got to be a prophet, he's got to be a priest, and he's got to be a king. So maybe we're waiting for two or three people. But the angel is announcing that this baby that's been born is the Christ, and he is going to bring all of these offices together. He is going to be the prophet, the priest, and the king that God has anointed. First, the role of a prophet. Jesus is going to represent God to the people. When Jesus speaks, he is speaking as God to them. He is bringing God's word, his will, the knowledge of salvation to his people. The prophets would speak for God. And so they were, the people of Israel remembered the promise that there would be another prophet like Moses who would one day come. And they looked forward to this prophet. And so when Jesus feeds the 5,000, do you remember this story? At the very end in John chapter 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, all the people get really excited. And they say, this is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. Because he did what Moses did. Moses fed the people in the wilderness, and now Jesus has fed people in the, world, in the wilderness miraculously. He must be the prophet. And then what they do is they try to make him king. So they're combining prophet and king together in John chapter 6. And Jesus himself said that the Spirit has anointed him to preach good news. He has been anointed, set apart to proclaim the gospel. The author of Hebrews put it this way, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. This child is the Christ, is the anointed prophet for his people, but he's also anointed as priest. The priests were anointed with oil. Aaron and his sons were set apart. They poured oil on their heads to designate them for temple worship. But now a priest had come who would intercede for the people, would intercede before a holy God, and he would bring the sacrifice that would satisfy the wrath of God for their sins. But the sacrifice that he would bring was not like the regular sacrifices of sheep and goats that these shepherds were watching. Now this, this priest would offer himself as the sacrifice. He is set apart to offer his own blood, to offer his own life in our place. But the emphasis in the angel's proclamation is definitely on the fact that he, as the Christ, is the king. Because he is the Davidic Messiah, the promised Messiah who had come from the line of David. Three times in this chapter, we've already been told that there's a connection between this baby born and David long ago. We're told that Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem, the city of David, twice. And that he's of the house and the lineage of David. This baby, this Christ, is of the line of David. He will sit on David's throne forever and ever. He will rule over his people. He will protect them. He will guide them. He will lead them. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. As the Christ, Jesus will be the prophet, the priest, and the king of God's people. But that's not the, the only title, right? We've got Savior, we've got Christ, but then he adds one more. And bringing all three of these titles together only happens here in the Bible, which is pretty unique. So let's pay attention to this, right? He calls him Lord. The use of the word Lord here. It could mean master or an honorary title or something, but for, for Jewish listeners, when they hear the word Lord, they would immediately think of God. 
because Lord was the word that was used in place of the Lord's name, Yahweh. So when they heard this word Lord, they would think Yahweh. And so to call him Lord here is to call him God. To say that this baby is God become flesh. That he's Yahweh come to dwell with us. That he is Emmanuel. So in these three lofty titles, the angel has pointed out that this baby who's lying in a manger is our Savior. He's the Christ. And he's the Lord. And can you imagine as shepherds hearing that and saying, okay, well, let's go see him. And seeing this baby and thinking, how is this God's plan? This little child in a manger is the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord. Well, the way that this happens is as Christ, as Savior, as Lord, he does something that no one else can do. And that's what the angels proclaim, right? The angel right now is proclaimed just to the shepherds, but now he's, he's joined by a multitude of angels. Look at verse 14. They say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Thousands of angels join to praise God for what he's doing. They say glory to God. They're exalting God because the work of salvation has begun, that Jesus has entered into the world and now God's plan of salvation can go forward. And the result is that this Savior, this Christ, this Lord brings peace on earth. It's, it's so common as we get close to, as you're around Christmas and the Christmas season, you'll see news reports and articles about how there's supposed to be peace on earth and how we need to pray that we'll have peace on earth and they'll name different conflicts and they'll tell you how many conflicts and wars are going on across the world. And so often we think, oh, that's the peace that Jesus brings. And it's true one day he will end all wars. It's true one day there will be no more wars like that. But that's not what the angels are talking about. They're talking about a different kind of peace. And they're not talking about a peace that's just like, you know, when you're overwhelmed and you're anxious and you're worried, you can just rest secure. You know, you can curl up on the couch and have a nice cup of hot coffee and, you know, the fire's burning. That, that's not the peace they're talking about either. The angels are proclaiming that Jesus brings peace on earth, but this peace is a peace between God and man. When Jesus comes, he is going to reconcile two, two people who have been separated. He's going to reconcile God with man. The Bible tells us that we are enemies of God because of our sin. Paul tells us in Romans 10 that, that Christ died while we were yet sinners, while we were still his enemies. Romans 8, 7, Paul tells us that our mind, apart from God, apart from the saving work of Christ, is hostile to God. It is at enmity with God. We are enemies at war with God. And so the angels are proclaiming now that because Jesus has been born, there's going to be peace available between God and man. Zechariah prophesied just a few, you know, just the previous chapter, that this baby would guide our feet on the path of peace. And Isaiah prophesied that this Messiah would bring peace by his sacrificial death. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus brings us peace with God. The good news is that now we can be reconciled with God. 
There's no better summary than in the words of Charles Wesley. Hark the herald angels sing, peace on earth, mercy mild. God and sinners are reconciled. That is why Jesus came. That is the good news that the angels bring. That is the good news that we need to hear as well. The angels are in a sense declaring that a great battle has been won. That this baby brings peace. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he talks about the birth of Jesus as an invasion. You remember C.S. Lewis was writing Mere Christianity during World War II. He's doing these broadcasts and you can imagine this idea of an invasion that's bringing peace, right? They're, they're waiting for D-Day in a sense. They're waiting for boots to get on the ground, to know that victory is coming. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, this story is of how the rightful king has landed. You might say, though, that he's landed in disguise. Because he's landed as a, a tiny little baby in a manger. He's born in some insignificant part of the Roman Empire in this tiny town to a man and woman no one would have ever heard of. But the angels reveal that he is Savior, that he is the Christ, that he is the Lord, that God has come to earth and he is the Prince of Peace. And truly one day of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this season that we've been able to set apart to remember the coming of your Son. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, help us to understand the good news of what you've done for us in Christ more and more, that we would react like Mary and treasure up these things in our hearts and ponder them anew each and every day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.